Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for teaching us from it. We pray that you would help us to learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I will say a few words about the church, Israel, and the kingdom. We heard uh, something this morning already about the king. The Bible speaks much about his kingdom. Uh, Someone asked uh, toward the beginning of this series whether I was going to bring the biblical idea of the kingdom into our study of the church. We won't examine it in detail, but we would benefit from having a basic understanding of what that kingdom is. And I think that understanding may be best introduced uh, by a review of the positions in God's plan of the church and its Old Testament counterpart, Israel. So today's lesson is about the church, Israel, and the kingdom. Let me affirm, first of all, that the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. The word church in the New Testament means an assembly of people, It could mean the assembly of the Israelite nation. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is the people of God in the New Testament. So certainly there are similarities between the two. But in its technical sense, the church, as we think of the church of Jesus Christ, is a new entity in the New Testament. How do we know that? Matthew 16:18 Jesus says, "I will build my church." That implies that it's future, it's something he will build. The New Testament descriptions of the church tie it directly to knowledge of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1:2, Paul addresses the church of God which is at Corinth, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. We could multiply that with all the other examples that there are, speaking of what the church is in the New Testament. No one in Old Testament Israel called upon that name, the name of Jesus, because he had not yet come. The church is the product of the gospel, and the gospel had not been fully revealed in the Old Testament. Israel of the Old Testament was a nation of related people living in a special land governed by a political organization and subject in their religion to God's priests who oversaw the sacrificial system. In contrast, the New Testament church is a spiritual union of members from all nations, not bounded geographically, distinct from the state, and no longer tied to temple worship. Both Israel under the law and the church under the gospel are creations of God, not man. Under both dispensations, Salvation is received in the same way, by faith. 
Never let yourself fall into the error of imagining that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works. If you find yourself thinking that way, I recommend Paul's epistle to the Galatians, in which he shows that the law was not given so that people could be saved by doing the works of the law. Salvation in the Old Testament, as in the New, is by faith. But though both Israel and the church are part of God's plan, part of his plan for saving people by faith, they are distinct phases of that plan. They have existed for the same purpose, but they are not the same. If the church is not Israel, what happened to Israel when the New Testament came? That's what Paul addresses in Romans 11, the chapter I suggested you might read in preparation for today. Let me tell you what didn't happen when the New Testament uh, came and when the church was created. The church did not supersede Israel. In Romans 11, Paul vigorously demolishes that idea. Israel is still Israel. God's covenant with Israel still stands. Furthermore, God's promises to Israel have not become spiritualized. Some theologians rightly reject the idea that the church simply takes over from Israel, which then passes out of the picture. They admit the truth that at some time in the future, Israel will return to God. But as to God's promises about Israel's land and a king reigning over them in Jerusalem, those, they say, are metaphors for the new birth in Christ. They can thus explain away many passages of Scripture, including Revelation 20, about the millennial reign of Christ, as being allegory. Yet such an approach to Bible prophecy is inconsistent. In the, fulfilled, in the recorded incident, instances of fulfilled prophecy, God always did just what he said he would do. Why should his promises about Israel, especially about Israel living in its land under a king from the house of David, be any different? So we know that those promises still stand and that uh, the church does not take Israel's place in the fulfillment of those promises. What has happened, Paul explains in Romans 11, is that Israel has been temporarily set aside. In the Old Testament, God worked primarily with Israel, though there were some from outside Israel who came to know God. Israel was supposed to be a witness to the surrounding nations. In the New Testament, God works in the church, which includes people from all nations, though unfortunately only a small number from the nation of Israel. These two eras in God's plan follow one after the other. First Israel, then the church. We are living now in what Jesus in Luke 21:24 calls the times of the Gentiles. That's the time we live in now. At the future reign of Christ, at his second coming, the scripture indicates that Israel will again become central to God's working in the world. 
though of course the whole world will share the benefits. We might say that in the millennium, God will actually accomplish through Israel what Israel was meant to do in the Old Testament time. In our time, the people of Israel are asleep. You see that in Romans 11.8. They are in darkness, verse 10 of the same chapter. They have stumbled, verse 11. They have fallen, verse 12. They have been cast away, verse 15. This language refers to the current position of Israel, not the final position of Israel, but the current position of Israel. I have sometimes heard Christians talk or write as if there is no need to evangelize the Jews. They are all going to heaven. They're all going to be saved because they are God's chosen people. That is not true. The Jews are lost just as we all were before we believed in Christ. But Romans 11.26, I think it's 26, 25 talks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And then after that, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. At that time, there will be a national repentance, a national turning of Israel to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Then Israel will once again inhabit the land in peace, and Christ will reign over them for a thousand years. The church is not Israel. The church has temporarily replaced Israel that replacement is not permanent. Though it's somewhat removed from our main topic, I think it would be helpful to address a question that naturally arises at this point. In Romans 11, we see that God is not actively working with Israel right now. He has set them aside for the time. Because of their unbelief, he has set aside his own people. And though there remains a believing remnant who are part of the New Testament church, you see that in uh, verse 5 of the chapter, even so at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Though there remains that remnant, God will not bring the whole nation back to himself until the end, sometime in the future. If that is so, how does the present state of Israel, as it exists in the Middle East, fit into God's plan? <clears throat> you can reflect on the events since the 1940s and the existence today of <clears throat> that political state of Israel within the Promised Land. If the restoration of Israel as prophesied in the Bible is tied to their repentance and faith in Christ, doesn't it seem as if something else has gone wrong with God's plan? People in the first century, when Paul wrote Romans chapter 11, could say, it looks like God has abandoned his people. Perhaps someone today might say, 
it looks like God has forgotten his word. In Deuteronomy 30:16, Moses assures Israel that if they turn away from God, they will not prolong their days upon the land. How could God have allowed them to return to the land in the modern age when they have not yet returned to him? To answer that question, let me remind you that the modern state of Israel, I mean the political entity, its government and citizens, is not equivalent to the nation of Israel to whom God made the promises. Some members of one are members of the other, but they are not exactly equivalent. Further, the fact that some members of the nation of God's chosen people have been allowed to establish that political organization in the land really has no observable direct connection to scriptural prophecy. Not all of them have returned. They do not currently possess the land in complete security. And perhaps most importantly, the son of David does not reign as king in Jerusalem. So it's not a case of God forgetting that he wasn't supposed to restore them to the land until they repent and call upon him. As far as we can tell, what has happened in the Middle East in the last 80 years or so isn't directly related to God's plan for Israel as revealed in the Bible. But we know it is part of God's plan. Otherwise, it couldn't have happened. So we still ask, why has God allowed that modern state of Israel to be there? Well, we can't know for sure. We don't know why God does anything in history until he tells us why. And uh, apart from the statements in the Bible about uh, what he did in past history, it's hard for us to know for sure why God does what he does. But I do have a guess about this question. Let me read from 1 Kings 20, 28. There came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. The king of Israel, to whom that message came, was not David. It was Ahab. Was Ahab a king who followed the Lord? You're shaking your heads. No, he wasn't. He was a king who rejected the Lord. He allowed his wife to lead the nation into uh, idol worship. But God still sent him this message that he was going to deliver their enemies into their hands. God saved Israel that day, not so much because of his covenant with Israel, because the covenant had been broken by Israel, but because he wished to show Israel and the nations, especially the Syrians in this instance, that he is the Lord. He wanted to demonstrate that he still is the God of Israel in spite of their sin. 
So I wonder, we can't know for sure, but I wonder if God has allowed Israel to be represented by a modern state, not because that fulfills any of his prophecies that he gave, but because he wants to remind the world, including any Jews who would listen, that he still is the Lord and that he has not forgotten his people, though uh, his salvation of them is yet in the future. We have Israel and we have the church. Now, what about the kingdom? John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, picking up with the very same words that John had preached. The Bible speaks of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. You may have encountered the nonsense that makes the kingdom of heaven something different from the kingdom of God. If you compare the two phrases in the scripture, you see that the two are synonyms. Is the kingdom the church? Is the kingdom Israel? Is it both? Is it neither? Are there several kingdoms of God? We can't explore this question in detail, but let me give some uh, basic uh, facts that we know about the kingdom. God sits as king over all the world. Psalm 103:19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. As Nebuchadnezzar witnesses in Daniel 4:35, God has absolute sovereign control over everything. God, God rules over all, and specifically, God has appointed a kingdom for Israel to be ruled over by a man of his own choice. In 2 Samuel 7:16, he tells David that David's throne shall be established forever. In the time of King Rehoboam, the house of David was restricted to Judah. But Jesus indicates in Luke 22:30 that one day his kingdom will again include all of Israel. He speaks about the 12 tribes of Israel in that verse that will be part of his kingdom. <clears throat> in its origin, every human kingdom including David's, is a case of delegated authority. God assigns a human king the responsibility to rule. But in its end, this kingdom is unique. In Daniel 2, we read of the stone that became a mountain and filled the whole earth in the, the king of Babylon's dream. In Revelation 11:15. We find great voices saying that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Christ shall deliver up the kingdom to God, that God may be all in all. The Christ who reigns over the whole earth is the son of David who reigns over the kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> 
Some have suggested that the kingdom of heaven preached by John and Jesus may have been Jesus' kingdom of Israel. They say that Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews who rejected it as they would not accept him as king. We know that that part is true. They did reject him as their king. Therefore, this teaching goes, the kingdom was postponed to a future time. In other words, if they had accepted Jesus at that time, he would have reigned over the kingdom of Israel. But this theory of the offer and then postponement of the kingdom has no support in Scripture. Jesus, in fact, refused to be made a king. He came the first time to die, not to reign on his earthly throne. He wouldn't take up his authority as king until he had suffered. And even after the resurrection, the first chapter of Acts, he refuses the idea of immediately restoring the kingdom to Israel. Since that is so, when Jesus or one of those other preachers in the Gospels, John or the Apostles, preached with these words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what did he mean? What kingdom was at hand if it wasn't Jesus' coming to rule from the throne of David? In John 18:36, Jesus answers that question before the representative of another earthly authority. To Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He denied a worldly kingdom not because he has no right to a worldly kingdom, not because he has not he is not the person who inherits that earthly kingdom of Israel. He does, but he hadn't received that kingdom yet. For the present time, Jesus' kingdom is an otherworldly kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. In his kingdom, he has servants. He mentions that to Pilate. He has servants, but he says his servants are not going to fight to save him from death. Their warfare, Paul tells us in one of the epistles, is not a carnal warfare. They serve their king in the realm of the spirit. Their business in the kingdom of heaven is with not the bodies and property of men, but with the hearts and spirits of men. They aim at not political stability on earth, but believing submission to God. The borders of the kingdom of heaven are extended when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom grows soul by soul and silently, as Sir Cecil Springrice puts it. But perhaps I haven't yet answered the question, what is the kingdom? Are there in fact two kingdoms or three? Think back to where I started this lesson. Does God have two separate peoples, Israel and the church? In a way we could say yes, Israel and the church are separate. 
But we could also say, not really. There are differences in how he deals with the two bodies. But the imagery in Romans 11 that Paul uses of branches being broken off and grafted in suggests that they are ultimately one, or at least that they become one. So it must be with his kingdom. Christ's inheritance of the throne of David and his reigning today in the hearts of his people as worked out in the life of the church are distinct. They are separate aspects of his rule, but they are still both parts of God's eternal rule over all his creation. Why then does Christ receive the throne of David? And why is there a kingdom of heaven in the New Testament? If God, as sovereign ruler over all, is going to have his own way in the end, regardless of whether people submit to him or not, what is the point of either kingdom? The answer to that question is grace. God chose Israel to be his own people. That Jesus will rule for a thousand years over a converted, regenerated nation of Israel is the fulfillment of God's covenant with that nation. That the same king who is the king of Israel as he's seen in the New Testament Gospels, welcomes many from the east and the west and the north and the south who press into his kingdom of heaven, demonstrates his gracious provision of salvation for the whole world, for as many as who would believe in him. When does the kingdom end? The kingdom of Israel, ruled over by David and his descendants, is an earthly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is manifested in the church on the earth. Will there be no more need for Jesus to be king in eternity? Let me refer to the last chapter that's printed in our Bibles, Revelation 22. Verse 1 of that chapter, he showed me, this is John speaking, uh, he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Same phrase appears in verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. In the eternal city of God, John sees the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus is that Lamb. Into eternity, he is still King, reigning with God the Father. Over what kingdom does he reign? Will it at that time be just the kingdom of heaven with no reference to Israel specifically? Will the kingdom of Israel not last beyond the millennium? The previous chapter, 
Revelation 21, gives a name to the city that John saw in which that throne is set. What is that name? You should know this without looking in your Bible. It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is that city. Just as the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he told her about the birth of her son, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you belong to that kingdom? I don't ask, shall you belong to it when it comes, but do you belong now? The kingdom isn't just for the future. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why does the church exist today? The church exists to bear witness to the gospel of Christ. That gospel is the message he preached. The message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you may enter into it if you will believe in the Savior and King who died so that you could join him in his kingdom. We see from the teaching of Scripture that God's ways of dealing with his people are not always identical as far as external features of those dealings work. Uh, There is a definite distinction between Israel and the church. They play unique parts in God's plan. First Israel, then the church, then once again Israel. But all of these are part of God's eternal working in his creation to bring to himself people who would serve him and know him. The kingdom of Israel, ruled over by David and his line, was a picture of God's rule over all things. The kingdom of Israel, ruled over by Christ himself in the millennium, will be a demonstration of how God's rule works in Israel in the world. But all of these things are pointing ahead to the eternal reign of Christ, the son of David, who will reign in the, in the new Jerusalem over not just people born from Israel, people who have come into his kingdom from all nations of the world uh, who come to know him and are saved through faith in Christ. Are there any questions about anything I've said today? Questions that could be answered in relatively short time. Yes.
there is still the idea that Christ is their king and our king. Mm-hmm. It's only that it's only through Christ that we are that any person can be saved. Is that not what the Bible teaches? Yes. And salvation is always through Christ. The Old Testament does look forward to Christ and his sacrifice. But if you examine the faith of people in the Old Testament, many of them were aware that God was going to send a person, the Christ, who would come to uh, save them in some way. Very few, perhaps none of them, understood what that meant. The, the gospel of Christ is in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ himself taught that. And he pointed out to his disciples that they should have seen it there. They should have seen that he had to suffer. But as we examine the Old Testament scriptures, we find very few people, if any, that had much of an understanding of that. Uh, the New Testament, I think this is First um, uh, Peter maybe, uh, talks about the, maybe it's Second Peter, the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied of the, the grace of Christ, the grace of God that would come. And they wanted to know what it was about. But even though they were the ones preaching that message from God, they themselves didn't understand what it meant. It was for a future time. So everyone in the Old Testament is saved by Christ. That is the basis of God's being able to justify them. It's the, the future sacrifice of Christ. But they themselves did not know that. They believed in the word of God as much as it was revealed to them. And if they believed, they were saved. But they did not have the same... I can put it this way. They're, the basis of salvation from God's perspective, is the same in both ages, the sacrifice of Christ. The human reception of that is the same in both ages. It's by faith in the word of God. But the content of that faith is different depending on how much God had revealed up to that point. So what God spoke to Adam and Eve, there's a hint at someone who's going to come, but really very little description. They had very little to go with. As the Old Testament was written, more and more was added, but it wasn't until Christ himself came that the full gospel was uh, available for our faith. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. I just that yeah. explanation that helps to you know, bring light upon, okay, they believed what was written, mm-hmm. right? And that's yeah. what and what's interesting is, um, like in Romans 4, one of the individuals that is held up as a great example of faith is Abraham. But what is also interesting is that in Abraham's day, there was no written word of God. That didn't come until perhaps Job, some say, was maybe the first or Moses, right? So, but there was word of God, right? So God had spoken to Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he is believing the word of God 
in his case, it was not the written word, and obviously it also was not the full revelation, as Brendan just pointed out. So revelation has been an increasingly progressive thing until the New Testament time when we now have the complete revealed Word of God. In Abraham's decision, God is also providing sacrifice for your state. Yeah, for sure. And Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. So he did have some understanding. We don't know entirely all that he knew. Certainly what's recorded is limited as far as the historical record. But no question he believed God. No question it was rooted in the Word of God, that is God's revelation to him. No question there was this sense of their own sin and their need for God to provide for that. Anything else? Yeah, I've got another question, but I'm not going to ask it because it's going to drag on. Okay. It does lead to another question. It's going to ask you personally, but it's just encapsulated. You know, in today's world, you know, there's peer-to-peer, you have the Word of God, but obviously we have those that do perish, pass away without ever hearing it, and that's obvious. So, which would lead to another question, but I think you know where I'm going. And so, I guess the, you know, to not get this started here, because I'm not trying to say, I'm trying not to say too much, but obviously the Word of God is complete in our hands. It's up to us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But we obviously have people who have never heard, and who do perish while they've never heard. So, that's a whole other topic related to a little bit, can be tied to what was just said, but I don't want to interrupt you, so that'll take us back to you. Yeah, that would take us, there is... There is a simple answer, but I'd have to think about how to word it, so we'll we'll leave that for another time, perhaps. Um, anything else? All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for giving the scriptures to us to reveal your plan. We thank you for the promises made to Israel and for the salvation that that nation and those of us from all nations can have in Christ. We pray that we would accept him as our king and that we would work as his servants to expand his kingdom to others who might also come to believe in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.